Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. Is popular nationalism in China a state-led strategy that's aimed at bolstering its legitimacy and state control? They're calling for war at the enemy's gates. Chinese protesters besiege the Japanese embassy in Beijing, angry over Japan's purchase of disputed islands. It's a message the Chinese government seemed in no hurry to suppress. As we're starting to see, nationalism, especially in a country as large and internally diverse as China, is a complex and combustible concept that can easily exceed the limits of party management. In this episode of Ear to Asia, we discuss the rising tide of nationalism, authentic or confected, in China. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers to unpack the issues behind the news in a region that's rapidly changing the world. When he addressed the Chinese Communist Party's 19th National Congress recently, China's President Xi Jinping exhorted delegates to, quote, tell the China story well and build China's soft power. Bolstered by China's meteoric economic rise and the perception at high levels within the Chinese government that the West is in decline, Beijing's propaganda machine is, according to some, moving into a higher gear, pumping out an increasingly nationalist message for consumption at home and abroad. This propaganda's apparent success seems to be taking many forms, from Chinese student groups publicly denouncing a University of Sydney lecturer for using a map showing disputed territory under Indian control, to the destruction of Japanese-branded cars in Chinese cities over yet another territorial squabble, to a growing army of volunteer internet trolls at the ready to pounce on any and all who would dare to criticise China online. We'd be hard put to name a country that doesn't practice and promote nationalism of one form or another. Governments will, for a range of reasons, seek to build on or exploit the natural proclivity, that tribal reflex of citizens, to have pride in their country. But how does nationalism actually figure in an increasingly assertive China? Is the Chinese citizenry really gripped by an organic nationalistic fervour on a scale responding to and proportionate to its newfound power? How much is that natural patriotism being induced, being manufactured and amplified for use by a one-party government primarily looking out for its own interests, its own future? On this episode of Ear to Asia, Asia Institute political scientist Dr. Sao Kiat Tok and Dr. Delia Lina with us to examine the machinations behind and the implications of a growing nationalism in China. Welcome to Ear to Asia to you both. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Now, I've already used that term, rising nationalism. I can't read anywhere nationalism in connection with China without adding that qualifier, rising. Is it truly rising, do you think, Salkert, or is it pretty much a function of an increased focus of largely the Western media? I think it is rising. Um, we have to probably put in context what's happened in the last 25 years or so. After Tiananmen in 1989, the Tiananmen incident, China, or the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP, embarked on this nationalism or what they call the patriotism education campaign in the early 1990s. Under Jiang Zemin. Uh, that was during the early Jiang Zemin time, that's true. But since that point, you see a slowly more politicised and socialised society and a generation of young Chinese people that grew up with the nationalist narrative and started to believe in what the regime is trying to tell them 
who they belong to and how they belong, etc. And to the early 2000s, where you see the rising Chinese economy, the uh, successful holding of the uh, Olympic Games, etc., that kind of entrenched that nationalist feeling over time. And so, yes, I do agree that it is rising and still rising as we speak. As I said in the opening, almost any government around the world, democracies, more totalitarian governments, use that narrative, use the propaganda, use the national narrative as part of what they do in governing. How is it different in China? I agree with you. Every nation state in the world is obliged to create a nation. That is part of our historical experience, where states in the past were just recognised because there's a crown in the state. In the early 20th century, our state transited from one of the traditional state to a nation, modern nation state, where a lot of states are expected to have a nation encapsulated within the state. And with that very, very rapid decolonization in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, you see that a lot of those colonies were suddenly the sovereignty was just bestowed on them and they were expected to create their nation state. They have to somehow embark on a kind of program to create the nation. So, yes, it doesn't matter whether it's China, United States, Russia or a country in Africa, for example. They are all trying to create that nation. Now, what is different with China is that that nation or the sense of nationalism was created primarily based on humiliation rather than pride. That is something very peculiar to Chinese. In China, any sense of nationalism is about China being bullied by the West, China being conquered, being colonized, semi-colonized in their terms. It's only very recent years that this narrative changed to include more of the pride being a Chinese by mobilizing the narrative of history, by mobilizing the narrative of new achievements such as astronauts in space and so on and so forth. So it comes from a different direction, I'll say that way, the Chinese nation. That century of humiliation plank in the propaganda and in the nationalistic narrative, if you like, that's very potent, isn't it? Absolutely. I think in 1949, I mean, the myth, okay, I had to emphasize that, that was the myth, that Mao actually stood in front of the Chinese people in Tiananmen Square and declared that Chinese people finally stood up. Of course, it was now highly disputed. But that kind of statement somehow became entrenched in the mentality. Until that point of history, Chinese people were being bent by the powers of history and they were not able to lift up their spine and and say proudly to the world that we are the Chinese nation. So that was a very powerful message that was sent across and remembered by Chinese. Dearly, obviously and objectively, China, largely the Han Chinese, have a long and deep cultural history. It's an amazing history and with an enormous amount of culture attached to that, whether it's the characters, the performances, the literature, etc., How do we tell from outside what's a natural patriotism compared to a manufactured nationalism? I think how we differentiate this organic national pride from manufactured nationalism, very much embedded in nationalism, is also this discourse of exclusiveness. This is us versus others. So who are the others? Who are the we? This is very much entrenched in the whole discourse of nationalism as well. Uh, It doesn't matter whether that's for a national rejuvenation or that's to create a Han identity. Uh, So there was always this discourse right from Singha Sen's time, this discourse of exclusiveness. And how is this exclusiveness 
created is created through some fabricated, fixed sort of、um, rewriting of history, and through the language, through the stories. So some stories are not to be disputed.、Uh, so this five thousand years of continuous history of China, that homogeneous kind of history of China, is not to be disputed. So that's in the storytelling of the government, and also the way that academic work even is monitored. So if you have academic work that looks at interaction between China and the West, way back in history, for example, even talking about building the Xi'an Terracotta Army, is that just purely Chinese doing, or? Europeans helped as well. Was there a Greek influence? And European DNAs were found. But these kind of stories were not told in public media. In social media, maybe this kind of research is pretty quiet, and and there's abundance of research material there, but not known to the general public. A lot of symbolism here. You mentioned the terracotta warriors, the Qin Dynasty, over two thousand two hundred years ago. The very palpable symbol of the Great Wall of China. You talk about exclusivity. These stories and people's understanding of them. How alive are they still within nationalist propaganda? They are definitely well alive. It's not that everybody believes it, and definitely there was skepticism,、uh, there was resistance. That's for sure. But because those stories are not to be disputed, and those sort of facts. Are fixed. For example, the Nanjing massacre. How many people were killed? Three hundred thousand. So that's a story told by the government. And if anybody starts to question the number, then that will be considered as a sign of being against this whole nationalistic education, and perhaps be accused of not loving the country. So some of the stories are fixed, and that's what we call in manufacturing. And that's why it is fabricated because it's a narrative that you cannot dispute. So we're really talking, Salkiad, about narrative wrangling, aren't we? How does this work with the still growing Chinese middle class, the better educated class, with more access to perhaps social media outside, beyond the reach of the Chinese Communist Party? How does this narrative wrangling work with them? I think we have to look at things from two perspectives. At one end, there is this state narrative, a narrative that the state wants the people to believe in or to buy into. However, at the、uh, social level, there are lots of questionings, rumblings under the surface of the water. Especially as you mentioned, with the、uh, rise of social media, with better access to different narratives, to different voices overseas, the middle class—and I wouldn't use the word middle class—but the highly connected, more the elite, not necessarily the elites. The, the netizens in China can、uh, come from a range of different social background, but with better access to Internet contents, they are definitely capturing different、uh, narratives from outside China. However, my thought is that when you were brought up, you are socialized in a particular environment. You are basically within a box, and it is very difficult to place perspective or content outside the box. While some successfully integrate other forms of knowledge into their world outlook, most of them would reject narratives outside the box that they were accustomed with. That seems to be the case for a lot of people, and that box, I like to add, is very much governed by the government, the regime in China. And anyone who stood outside the box will be liable to sanctioning by the regime. Some would have alternative thoughts, but as far as possible, their outlook, the way that they try to behave or hold themselves in public, 
they'll try to fit themselves into the box. And that box is something that is very safe. It's something that unless they find themselves in private situations where they can freely exchange ideas, they're not willing to go out from. This is how I felt when I talked to Chinese people. I did research on Chinese students, for example, and the, the narratives that we try to get them to talk about in terms of Great Leap Forward, in terms of Cultural Revolution, in terms of Tiananmen, they were pretty much more comfortable talking within that box rather than outside. And even though we guaranteed that that is something that is private, we are not going to divulge their identity and so on and so forth, they're not willing to really step out of it. I'd like to also mention that the Chinese government has one of the world's most sophisticated regimes in governing the internet what we call the Great Firewall of China. And that is something that has very effectively blocking out dissident voices on the internet and controlling the inward flow as well as outward flow of information in the internal internet within China. While we're talking about nationalism, we've all got Xi Jinping in our minds. And recently, of course, he was given, I guess, effectively presidency for life. How does his newfound status, the apparent expunging of the collective leadership as opaque as it is, with now that leading figure, his thoughts revered, how does that play into our discussion of nationalism? Without reading too much into the whole affinity towards a central individual, what she did since he came to power was really the consolidation of the historical narrative in China. If I'm not wrong, it was in 2014 he first mentioned in the uh, Central Party School that we should all learn from history. History is the best textbook. And from there on, you see that continuous trend of trying to use history as a way to validate the party's legitimacy as well to legitimize its own hang on to power. You know, subsequently, you see the uh, passing of four uh, what we call commemorative days by the uh, National People's Congress. So we have now today in China's political and social calendar, we now have four commemorative days, one being the victory against the Japanese, so the victory of the war of resistance against the Japanese. Then you have the uh, Martyr Day, you have the Constitution Day, and you have the Nanjing Massacre Day. Okay, so within four years, they passed four commemorative days. And all, if you look at them, is really tied into the kind of modernization of that national identity. It's about the creation of the nation state through constitution. It's about the humiliation of people through the uh, narrative of Nanjing Massacre. It's, again, the humiliation of people and how Chinese stood up against foreign bullying in the Martyr's Day. And, of course, the uh, victory against the Japanese. It just tells all. So it's, it's very much that kind of narrative that they want people to believe in. And since 2015, she actually effectively locked down any revisionist ideas of the party's history. So party history is no longer subject to discussion. It's locked and cast in stone. That is something that cannot change anymore. In fact, um, a lot of social media like Weibo and WeChat, the notice was out to say that any discussion on history will be locked. The account will be locked and the person will be investigated for all the narratives. And not only the person who actually talk about that alternative narrative, but also uh, the person who initiated the WeChat group. So if a person talks about it within a WeChat group, then the so-called group leader, the person who initiated the WeChat group, will be persecuted as yeah. well. Now, that's a disincentive, isn't it? And it shows you how crucial the narrative wrangling actually is. 
Here in Australia and in the Anglosphere, we talk about World War II, but in China, they don't call it World War II at all. It really has Japan, as you've already alluded to, uh, embedded in that description of World War II. And just recently, the actual length of that war that we call World War II was extended right back to, what, 1931 to make sure that the Communist Party of China was part of that narrative. How does that focus on Japan continue to be really a central part of uh, nationalism in China? Yeah, so part of nationalism building or manufacturing nationalism is to build the other as well. The other groups or the other race, it could be anybody. Uh, so since Sen Yat-sen's time, when he was talking about nationalism as well, we'll have to kick out all the barbarian Manchus. For whatever reasons, you have to create an enemy or create a group of people uh, that the whole nation should have this antagonistic view towards. So Japan is the baddie, created the baddie through that whole Japan story, then to establish the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. So as what uh, Soki uh, just mentioned, all those commemorative dates and all those uh, remembrance dates, so all those stories about the humiliated past is also to create the glorious imagination of the Chinese Communist Party. So who is the one who brought you out of this humiliation is the Chinese Communist Party. So when we talk about nationalism, we usually talk about love for the country and love for uh, the state. But in China, as a one-party party state, then love for the country is tied up with the love for the party. And especially under Xi Jinping, uh, that the party now is above the state. I mean, it won't be exaggeration to say that the party leads all. So love for the party, love for the country together. And then, of course, there were people on social media to say that I love my country, but I don't love the party. So that kind of voice is certainly a voice that will be censored. So Japan, or hatred, if you like, for Japan is a tap that can be turned on or off or adjusted, finessed, if you like. There's some real politic involved here, geopolitics, the relationship between Japan and China in the real world, if you like. Is that a a threat, a danger to the Communist Party, managing that? Yes and no, because when we talk about international relations, we talk about the state to state and also subnational relationships and, and also people people relationships. And certainly it would affect people to people relationships to a great extent when that hatred, that uh, baseless uh, hatred is amongst many people. But with a lot of people traveling to Japan and seeing a different country and also write about their stories, resistance is also uh, very strong as well. Resistance Resistance is tremendous via social media, even with this strong censorship. Resistance from? So from the people, from the people who are seeing a different world and who are thinking and who are questioning, even though perhaps they tend to think within uh, their box. And even though that kind of resistance can be futile and it can be suppressed very easily, but the resistance is there. So stronger the control is. I believe stronger the resistance is, and the people are very intelligent. They try to find ways through all the censored social media expression of views. I agree with Delia about the resistance. However, I think a lot of those resistance were internalized rather than externalized. In my chats with some of the Chinese students around Melbourne, a lot of these students, while they are aware of you know 
Tiananmen incident, for example, were they aware that they were subject to the oppression, to their freedom of speech and freedom of uh, of thoughts and etc. They become socialized to to that uh, more international ideals of what a human being should be. But when you ask them about what they would do when they go back to China, they would almost unanimously just tell you, "We will zip up our mouth and shut up and not say anything about it." They know that the world has changed. They know that they are subjected to certain oppression of rights that they're supposed to enjoy, but they are not going to rise up against the regime simply because they know. And that is a very peculiar situation that a lot of these Chinese found themselves in. You're listening to Ear to Asia, a podcast from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark with political scientists Dr. Delia Lin and Dr. Saokia Tok. We're discussing the role of nationalism in China. In this discussion on nationalism, Delia, could we just focus on ethnicity for a moment? We've acknowledged the Han Chinese domination. We've all heard of the tussles with the Uyghur people in the west of China, and Islam is involved in that as well. When I was visiting a place not far from Kunming called Lijiang, which is an old ancient canal city, it has one minority there, for example, that's very matriarchal. And I'm seeing a lot of this nationalistic uh, narrative as very patriarchal. And there are other minority groups there as well. How does that incipient or barely emerging pluralism play into our discussion, do you believe? the minorities within China? Good question. I mean, China has so many minority groups and so many ethnic groups. Uh, some of them have got their own languages. They certainly have got their own cultural background, their own belief systems. But you can look at different stages of what China has done in terms of dealing with this complexity because very much in nationalism is this homogeneous historical account. There was only one story. There was one history. We're all one nation. So for a very long time, in the 50s and 60s, definitely there was a very strong assimilation projects. The government decides how many ethnic groups there are. So that story, again, is set by the government, 56 ethnic groups. And that's, of course, it's open to discussion and debate. Are there only 56? But then any discussion or any skepticism over this number cannot be discussed. So this is a fix. There were 56 ethnic groups. And those 56 would have been demonstrated, for example, at the Olympics. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So acknowledging that plurality on the one hand and assimilation on the other. Assimilation through language policies, through building Chinese schools in those minority groups and making people feel that their children and grandchildren would be better off by studying or by learning Mandarin, and also to monitor or to censor what they do for their religion. Uh, I'll just add that um, most countries in the world actually do similar social re-engineering process. I mean, you look at a lot of the multicultural modern nation states, Malaysia, I was from Singapore, so Singapore did the same. You know, Indonesia, they all try to put different ethnic groups into very neat categorizations in order to administer resources. That is a common practice. But what I think in the more recent years that China was trying to do is to actually 
enhance that hardness in that nationalism. I think if you look at how Xi Jinping talks about identity, the Chinese identity today, one of it is the recognition of that Han culture in that identity. That somehow is different from other nation states where they try to create a more inclusive idea of the nation. Because in China's case, I think since Xi Jinping came to power, was really to enhance that Hanness in the identity. It's intriguing, isn't it, Delia, to think about the other great superpower, which is the United States, a very fragmented, mixed sort of young country that uses a kind of superheated patriotism, despite their civil war and despite what we're seeing, huge splits in the nation now. But their patriotism is used as a, both a weapon and a glue, if you like. Compare that to China, which has a Han domination. What would happen? Let's do a thought experiment. What would happen if the Chinese Communist Party let go a little, allowed pluralism to flourish a little more? Is that a threat to them, do you believe? I don't. I think actually China needs to do that, perhaps. If China needs to establish itself as an inclusive, a confident party, it's very important to acknowledge differences and acknowledge plurality and embrace those differences and not seeing those differences as a threat. Because the more that you control, uh, the actually less confident you are. And I think the outside world and also a lot of people inside are saying that. Whether or not people inside the country can say that aloud, that's a different story. But if we do this thought experiment, as if CCP opened the door and allow a lot of plural discourses to be created uh, within the society... What are the implications of that? Oh, of course, it's very difficult to imagine the CCP to do that because that really means the change of the entire uh, way of governing. I just can't say where it ends. It's basically a river of no return. I'd like to hear your views on that too, Sao Me Well, I think it is a situation where, to use an analogy, the Chinese Communist Party is riding a tiger. It gets on the tiger in order to build the nation. It cannot get off the tiger right now because getting off the tiger would mean disastrous consequences for itself. Looking from the leadership's perspective, the dangers of them acknowledging such differences is far too great. You know, the political consequences is far too great. Could you be more specific? Just name a couple of those real threats. Well, a good example, um, the uh, early 2000s, there was this new revisionist ideas of how Japan has changed the historical fabric of China. They talk about the anti-Japanese war, World War II, where Japan's rules might not be entirely that brutal to the Chinese nation. You know, there are certain positive things that Japanese have Downplaying brought. Downplaying that. Yes. But then the regime really quickly just come in and squeeze down all this narrative. Why? Because if this narrative were allowed to grow, it will directly challenge the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. That kind of plurality is not allowed. Okay, In the case of ethnicity, ethnicity has been the very core of Chinese nation all throughout history. Delia mentioned something about Sun Yat-sen. In Sun Yat-sen time, when he first thought of using the idea of nationalism, he excluded the Manchus and the so-called barbarians and said, you know, China is Han Chinese. But he found that there were not many audience to that narrative. And he started to include other ethnic groups into that narrative. You can say it's out of historical contingencies and occurrences that came together and it became a success. The nationalist revolution became a success. And succeeding regimes all 
control the narrative of who belongs to the Chinese nation. And CCP is no different in that case. So as far as possible, they'll try to allow plurality within the confines of what they draw, but not beyond it. Because anything beyond it is going to undermine the very narrative. They have to reconstruct the entire narrative to accommodate the new differences, which is a huge undertaking for any regime. From outside China, we tend to think of the population being homogenous in terms of their being captive to the propaganda. Now, I guess we've all had conversations late at night over a few drinks with Chinese citizens where there's a really strong subtext, jokes, references, and of course that that's what human beings are like. What I'm getting to is that nationalism, the sort of nationalism we've been describing, has a very strong emotional aspect to it, an emotion that's potent and can get out of control. Is this emotional side of nationalism also part of the threat to the Chinese Communist Party? You mentioned riding the tiger, and I'm thinking of, you know, you can pump up nationalism, but of mm. course it can get out of control. Definitely. I think we have a few cases where things got out of control. I just want to mention one, which is the uh, Wenchuan earthquake. Um, the Wenchuan earthquake was back in 2008. And after the earthquake, Japan wanted to send relief supplies to China. Most of the time when you send relief supplies, they will be through military planes or military means. And indeed, Japan wanted to use its military aircraft to send those supplies. And initially, the Chinese Communist Party agreed. But suddenly, you realized that there was a backlash, a furor within the social media. It was the first time since World War II that Japan has a military presence in China. And that kind of like triggered certain ultra-nationalists within China. And in the end, what happened is that the Chinese government had to step out and said, no, we're not going to accept any Japanese supplies. The Japanese planes are not going to land in China. We can deal with these problems on our own. And that is just a case where the tiger is actually biting on the hands that they're feeding them. As much as they would like the Chinese people to support the regime, the regime is also apprehensive about what uncontrolled nationalism can do to itself and what it can do to its policy behaviour. Final question to both of you. Stepping back from the content of what we've heard from both of you today and looking at the quality of the research and what you're able to actually research within a very complex, large and totalitarian state, how do you effectively and authentically bring to us quality research out of China? How difficult is that, Salkiot? Well, in the first place, if I do fieldwork in China, I cannot be telling people that I'm doing research on nationalism because that is not something that can be debated or questioned. You have to pretend it's something else. Yeah, I have to say that it's something else, but you know, something connected about identity. Um, I look at historical narrative and their relations with nationalism. You use proxies. I use proxies. I will ask questions, for example, when I do my fieldwork in Nanjing Massacre. I will ask questions about how the museum was built, what are the different phases the museum was built, did the narratives change, and uh, I will document the narratives. I will interview people based on their recount of the Nanjing Massacre history. I will look at videotapes of what has been produced by the state and compare them with others. So in a more comparative way, without really touching on the topic of nationalism, even though I am working on nationalism. So it's about how you introduce your topic, really. A lot of time, our research will bring us to 
pathways that we didn't anticipate in the first place. And just to share with you why I started on this project is a very interesting story. I lived in Beijing after the Olympics in 2008-2009. And uh, out of curiosity, I one day took a bus out to this uh, far-flung suburb in Beijing, the uh, Lugo Chao. Lugo Chao is the Marco Polo Bridge, which is where the Japanese invasion officially first started. It's not just commemorating the bridge, but also they built a museum so basically, it's a war memorial for the anti-Japanese war. And if you walk through the entire exhibition, okay, I went through with a very neutral attitude, going in thinking that there's something nice to see, you know, how they remember it. And then after I went through the entire exhibit, I came out of the museum feeling I want to kill some Japanese. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that powerful. It's, it's very powerful, that kind of things that they pile on you. And I still remember back in 2009, they still have this, at the very last exhibit was this panel which talks about how many Japanese soldiers were killed by the Chinese over time. It's not about how many people died in the war, but really how many Japanese soldiers we have the killed. Enemies. The, the, enemies. Well, the enemies. Well, that partly answers the question on how effective all this propaganda and nationalism Absolutely. is. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about research, though, as professional researchers, Delia, does it worry you that there's still an enormous amount where pretty much focused on the externals, if you like, and what comes out of the regime and little bits and pieces, but the the subtext, if you like, the more subterranean uh, sociality that's going on, the resistances that are truly going on, I guess, human beings be human beings. That's the hard part to research, isn't it? Mm, very hard, because especially when it comes to uh, resistance, then you perhaps have to rely on a lot of social media because we can record all the WeChat messages, but then you have to hide the identity of the people. And some of my informants take pictures and have to hide the identities who took the pictures because you do want to protect the identity. You don't want them to get into trouble and hide your motivation. I uh, absolutely agree with uh, Sokir that you have to hide your motivation while you're studying this because uh, especially when you know that you're going to interview interview people who are very outspoken, uh, especially out of few drinks, but there are also people who are afraid and people who have internalised uh, this whole emotion or affective attitudes are a big part of whole nationalistic campaigns. The frame of reference and how they interpret stories and how they interpret incidents and how they craft the stories themselves and through internal, because that's all they know. So there are people like that as well. And if they know that you hold a different view, they immediately would shut down. They wouldn't want to talk to you at all. Because the whole nationalism education or propaganda is not just about top-down. To study nationalism in China, you do need to study lived experience. You do need to study what people really think. And to make people feel safe to say what they really think, to recount their own emotional responses to things, uh, then you don't want to put out your purpose very clearly because then that will definitely affect the way that people respond to your questions. Well, a fascinating topic and not an academic one. This is crucial to all of us. It's, it's alive, it's dynamic, and it's happening to us right now in the world. Thank you to you both, uh, Saukiat Delia, for being with us today on Ear to Asia. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Our guest this time on Ear to Asia, political scientist from Asia Institute here at the University of Melbourne, Dr. Saukiat Tok and Dr. Delia Lin. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. 
Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 13th of June, 2018. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of ProFactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company. Thank you.